from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. Now, last month, Recycle Utah gave out its Green Business Awards, honoring local companies with environmentally mindful business practices. Joining us in the first part of the show to discuss the awards will be Mary Klosser, who is the Education Director with Recycle Utah. And two award winners, we have Julie Finnegan, who is the Impact Manager at Abode Luxury Rentals in the house, and also Kimberly Flores, who is the owner of Fulfilled Utah. Then in the second half of the show, we'll talk to David Owen. He's a writer for The New Yorker and author of the book, Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. Now, the river obviously is an essential resource for a surprisingly large part of the U.S., and every gallon that flows down it is owned or claimed by someone. David Owen traces all that water from Colorado's headwaters to its parched terminus, once a verdant wetland, but now a million-acre desert. He also, the book also tells how a patchwork of engineering marvels, Byzantine legal agreements, aging infrastructure, and neighborly cooperation enables life to flourish in the desert and the disastrous consequences we face when any part of this tenuous system fails. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. And you are listening to KPCW Park City, and this is The Screen Earth. I'm Claire Wiley. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And in the first part of our show, we are lucky enough to have our uh, visitors in studio, which we always love. And we are talking with Recycle Utah's Mary Klosser, Abode Luxury Rentals' Julie Finnegan, and Kimberly Flores, who is owner of Fulfilled Utah. And they're going to be talking about the Green Business Awards, which just took place not too long ago. And Mary, why don't we start with you and have you uh, first give us the 411 and the breakdown for the Green Business Awards, how they started and what they are. Yes, great. Thanks, Claire. Um, the Green Business Program has been going on now for, oh gosh, nine years and the awards have been occurring for eight years. And uh we are in the process of transitioning to a, a bigger program. Uh, Recycle Utah ran the program for a good solid seven years. And now we have the city, the county, the chamber, and the community, our community foundation involved. So we hope to enhance the impact of this program, strengthen it, um, really recognize businesses who have the greatest impact. Um, we are... Uh, it's it's going to be launched the new program in April, but you know to keep the program running We want to continue to recognize businesses who are really trying make to make um, great efforts and So every year we have a green business of the year a zest for zero and then a people's choice and uh, this year, you know, we don't have as many businesses in it just because we are in transition and, and haven't been doing a whole lot in 23. Um, we expect to double the number right now. We have about 52 businesses. We hope to have, you know, possibly 100 by the end of the year. And we were just very excited about recognizing, um, you know, Park City Mountain Resort won Green Business of the Year this year. And then Zest for Zero went to Abode Luxury Rentals. And then People's Choice went to Fulfilled. 
And when you look at these categories, what are the things that you're looking for, say, for the Green Business of the Year Award? Yeah, well, first of all, we have an amazing committee who votes on these awards uh, between the county, the city, the chamber, and Recycle Utah and the Community Foundation. We have a lot of expertise going into, you know, we have a good seven, eight people on the committee deciding on them. The um, Green Business of the Year, it's just kind of hands down. They are working hard in all of the different areas being energy, waste, water, transportation, social equity, community involvement, um, thriving community. And uh, so Park City Community Foundation won that. Zest for Zero, um, Abode Luxury Rentals, man, they're just, they're just really, they have a lot of zest in trying harder in many areas. They have already accomplished a few things and they have a lot of goals ahead. We'll get to hear from Julie about that. And then Fulfilled is, it's just their model. It's what they do. So Kimberly gets to talk a little bit about everything they're doing as a business and, and they won people's choice hand down, hands down. They got a lot of votes. So um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of um, you know, it, there's a lot of discussion going into to these awards. Who wins them? Sure. It sounds like the criteria you have um, set forth to make sure that all of these businesses are following these practices and hoping to get others on board. And Julie, uh, you are here um, from Abode Luxury Rentals. You are the impact manager there. So t walk us through some of the things that you consider to be sustainable practices at Abode. Okay, thanks so much, um, Claire. And I, um, when we started the program, we were really starting from scratch. And um, when I first started researching sustainability, there were so many relatively easy things that we could do almost immediately. And I decided that the best thing to uh, would be to go after the low hanging fruit, so to speak. So most of these were having to do with energy savings. We gradually replaced uh, light bulbs with LED bulbs, set our property's thermostats to 55 in the fall and the winter, and ensured that all, that was when they were vacant, obviously. <laughs> and we uh, ensured that all the window coverings were closed in the summer when the property was vacant as well, as well and we set all the water heaters to 120 degrees. Um, the next level was a little bit more involved, but still not a big expense. Um, I really wanted to get a, rid of those giant, ugly orange jugs of toxic detergent pods that we used to supply for our guests. And after a lot of research and price comparison, we landed on a liquidless laundry detergent sheet. Uh, it's a small, like five by eight sheet of detergent that's been, had all the liquid taken out of it. And it was with a company called Sheets. We chose the product based on reviews and price, but also because it was the best presentation option of all the choices at the time. All of our properties now have signs right on the washing machines requesting that the guest uh, try the product. And there's a QR code on the box for more information. Also, there was some additional education required for people to understand what they were using. But guests were really intrigued and seemed to really love the idea. And the product takes up much less space and really gets the job done. I've used it uh, myself for more than two years and I really love it. So um, another obviously big 
issue for hotels and property rental companies is the waste from all the toiletry amenities. Uh, the Clean the World organization partners with hotel properties across the world to recycle their discarded hand bar soap and bottled amenities such as shampoo and conditioner and lotion and body wash. All the bar soap is sanitized and recycled by this company and made into new bars. And all the bottles are, plastic bottles are pelletized and made into new products. So although our long-term goal is to do a refillable program for our guest uh, toiletries, as an interim solution beginning last season, we initiated a trial program in collaboration with the Clean the World at Black Bear Lodge up in Upper Deer Valley. We have about 25 units up there that we manage. And before the season began, we conducted a training session for our housekeeping team with assistance from Mary. And they did a tremendous job of carrying through with the initiative. Um, the impact we made with 25 condominiums over approximately four months of the winter season was that we collected 740 pounds of plastic, which was then pelletized to make other products. We collected 282 pounds of used hand soap, and that soap is taken to the, to the factory and it's sanitized and um, made into new bars. And we uh, made, out of that came uh, 2,583 new bars of soap that would be distributed to homeless and disaster victims around the country. And I want to pause you there because if you didn't do that, where would that soap end up? Um, all of it in the trash. Okay, so yes. this was this was the big yes. change. Yes. The fact that you took products like that that uh, either had to be thrown away. Yes. Um, uh, and now you've recycled them, or in this case, you know, kind of upcycled them, mm -hmm. uh, reused them in a way, and that's that's the big change. Um, was there a lot of you said you mentioned that there was some education of guests mm -hmm. required. Mm -hmm. yeah, we always got a little behavior change there. Exactly. Let them know what we're doing and why, mm -hmm. why you're doing it, and here's how you can participate. Mm -hmm. Is there also an education or behavior change that was required of staff, whether it's with that waste or with, you know, making sure thermostats are at 55 and other elements that they have to be educated too. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's probably one of the bigger challenges okay. of starting a new program. Yeah. Um, but I guess what they need to see is that there's a clear, there's a clear task to achieve. It's part of their job now to achieve it. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's also that they watch to see, are you going to be consistent? Are you going to drop it in a couple of weeks? And we're not going to have to bother with this at all. So that commitment, I've seen a huge change in, um, staff response over the last year since we started mm -hmm. from when we began. Okay. So they obviously, they respect the process more um, and they understand now it's just a part of the everyday and that takes a little time and patience. Exactly, because mm -hmm. that's what I've learned in, or and probably Mary, you've learned also in the past that educate, educating staff, whether it's with property managers or, or other HOAs or so, is critical to getting programs launched. They can be really aspirational on paper but it's, it's that staff education that is really critical. And baby steps, too. Big believer in baby steps. Yes, because going into the program, I'm so passionate about it that you just want to get in there and kick boulders. And so 
you know, it's it, it, it takes some time to see that there's patience and steps involved. To that end, why was it so important for Abode to be a leader in this space in our community? Well, I think that um, having the the thing that's most that I see most is that having the reach that we do as a business. Um, I have uh, really f found that it's a it's a great platform to get to the goals that we want to get to, and with 150 homeowners and thousands of guests per year, mm -hmm. um, we have this extended reach and we can really make an impact in education and inspiring people um, to go more green. Absolutely, and I think when other businesses hear your practices and see it enacted and then see the staff get involved and not only get involved, but get excited about the differences that they're making, I do feel like this could be a great ripple effect um, when everyone does this and especially when businesses are rewarded for this or um, in different ways. Obviously, you're in long term, a lot of times you're saving money. Obviously, yes. you're doing good things for the planet, but also being recognized as a leader in this space, I think is a big deal because it's such a hot topic now. We're going to turn our attention now to Kimberly Flores, who is the owner of Fulfilled, who also won an award, People's Choice, which is, I think, um, testament to someone that has gone out into the community and obviously um, not only talk the talk but walk the walk so tell us what it is that you do at fulfilled that follows this um, streamlined sure. practice and sustainability well as a sustainable lifestyle store focusing on helping people live with less waste um, it really is an integral part to what we do at fulfilled so not only are we showing people how to live with less plastic and fewer toxins in their own lives but certainly that sense to our business model. So when you come into Fulfilled, you'll see we have about, now we have close to 55 different household cleaning and personal care products, as well as 250 other tangible, non-liquid, non-cleaning, but items that you use every day in your home that are sustainable and package free. So one, we focused on waste. Um, we are a black a black diamond level member of the green business program. And I think waste is one of the, we can check off everyone mm -hmm. on the list. Um, and as it relates to our business practices, um, we focused on um, a closed loop circular model. So much of our liquid detergents and cleansers come in either five gallon up to 30 gallon, 50 gallon drums that are then sent back to the manufacturer to be clean and sanitized. So we are also as plastic free as we can be in our own business. Um, but something that's more customer facing that many people are not used to, um, we are at the outlets in Park City. Uh, and uh, so we have a wide variety of customers that come in. It's about 40% returning and 60% walk in off the street, which is great for a business just getting its start. Um, but a lot of people are not used to why we don't have bags and why we don't give receipts. So um, those are some of the ways that we also are cutting down on waste or why I don't have a business card. <laughs> Do you have a card? Actually, I don't, but here I have my dot card and you can take um, an image of it and, and get our contact information. But little things like that add up. Um, I know where the receipts go. First of all, they're lined in uh, toxic BHA chemicals, so we don't want those, especially us women. They're endocrine, endocrine disruptors. Mm -hmm. um, 
but we don't we don't want the bags we don't want the cards we don't want the receipts you're eventually going to throw away um, so that's one part that we do but we also um, kind of like uh, abode here luxury rentals we turn our heater down to 55 uh, when we're not there um, and unlike other retail stores we don't have our lights on I go in the back and actually flip all the breakers before I leave um, my staff do the same so that we don't we don't have lights on all night um, you'll see that in a lot of retail spaces and really no one's driving by to look in your windows in the evening. <laughs> yeah, so it's baked into your model um, and Julie alluded to you first tackled some of that low-hanging fruit, some of those things that you knew were easy to do and then you said baby steps, Mary, you took it in further and further and further. What are some of the things that maybe you could suggest for people out there, some of that low-hanging fruit things, the easy things that they can attach to that are daily differences that they can make in their life? I think first is to have someone look at their own lifestyle. I always suggest first, and I know Mary does the same, is to do a waste audit. Where is all of my waste coming from? And what are some of the things that I think I can change? As you see, um, most of us here, Julie has her refillable water bottle that she's her reusable water bottle. I brought my my mushroom tea. Claire, you've got your own um, reusable water bottles. Um, one gets rid of all the disposable, but also you're not drinking in all those microplastics that we know are there in, in your um, to-go water bottles. Mm -hmm. um, two, um, I'm a big fan of ditching straws. I mean, these are easy, easy, easy ones. Bring your own coffee cup, ditch the straws. Plastic bags are huge. Don't bring them into the stores. If you come into the store like mine, we won't have any. Um, those are meant to be around for 15 minutes before they have to be either landfilled or burned. Thankfully, we have Recycle Utah who's taken our, our soft plastics for us. But otherwise, most people... It's lifestyle of a bag is 15 minutes, as you all know. So, um, or people bring their own bags to the grocery store and then bag their produce. So also <laughs> maybe get rid of the produce bags. Um, so the little things like that. And then once those become routine, then you can go into something else. Then you can start bringing your cutlery with you to places. You can bring your own containers out to take home um, when you go have takeout. Uh, there's so many, many ways to, to live more sustainably. These are just, just a few. So when I go into uh, fulfill, what am I getting refilled? My laundry detergent, my dishwashing detergent. What what All other of things? All above, Chris. I'm still waiting. I brought in dog shampoo just for you oh. since the last time we spoke. Ooh, I, yeah. I want in on that. <laughs> well, so we've you got mean, for my dog. Yes, <laughs> Freddie needs a bath. Okay. Um, Sorry. Sorry. Yes. I had so we have I just, yeah, real, laundry detergent, dish soap, hand soap, face soap, body wash, right. automatic dishwasher powder, dishwasher tabs, laundry tabs, laundry okay. detergent, all-purpose cleaner, toothpaste tablets, face wash, face toner. Um, I The list goes on. Toothpaste tablets, I mentioned that one. That's yeah. a huge one. Um, anything you clean your home or your body with, I've got it by the ounce. Okay. So that's what you're offering for sale. Uh, and that's what I'm coming in to get refilled. I'm still trying to understand toothpaste tablets. I'm yeah, buying so you come two and toothpaste tablets. You'll come and you bring your own container or I, ha I okay. have some for sale. We weigh them. We weigh the container. You fill it up with the product that you want. We weigh it again and you only pay for the product. Okay. So you, don't, you can stop so, buying your trash. But then we also have, we reduce, reuse, refill. So reduce, we have 250, 300 products of things you use at home. So maybe Ziploc alternatives, um, alternatives to single-use products, so alternatives to paper towels, alternatives to plastic wrap, alternatives to your plastic dish brush. Um, the list goes on there as well. Um, then we have a reuse section with used clothing and used books, and as well as our refill section. So, so here's a, a question for both of you. Let's talk economics. Mm. Where do you see 
savings, you know, because bottom line, that drives a lot of businesses to be more environmentally mindful if it makes economic sense. Chris, so you can, can you give us a quick I'm thumbnail I'm so glad sketch you of, asked this because Julie and like I are you, working on a project together potentially. Right, so, cool. so for example, you turn your, you turn your electricity off. You, do you throw your breakers? I do. And I, do, what does that save you? Can you, can no, you quantify that's good. it? I don't know what the, because I am a tenant, um, I have an okay. interest. I, I don't know what the, what the, um, electricity bill was before I became a tenant. Right. So I only right. know before what I'm after. doing now. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's an example of saving energy, saving coal, natural gas, but saving money. Right. Well, hopefully you, yeah. you or your, we would assume the tenant correct. who saves the money. Right. But that's an example of how you can, uh, quantify it, turn this into dollars and cents savings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anything else you want to make as far as economic savings? I think savings? things, people assume that things are more expensive when they're sustainable. Right. I just saw a pack of, um, um, I don't even know what they're called because I don't use them. Paper towels, paper towels at the grocery store. A pack of paper towels is $14. And I know people that will burn through that in a few weeks. But if you come buy reusable paper towels for $38, I've used mine for three years. Um, so that's one small example. If you're going out and buying Mrs. Meyers, our soap is comparable cost per ounce wise. We are um, cleaner than, than Mrs. Myers who's been bought out. Um, for example, if you're gonna use our laundry detergents, you're only gonna use a tablespoon to a half a tablespoon depending right. on what it is. So that's 12 to 20 cents an ounce, right. which is cheaper than your Tide which okay. has carcinogens in it. Okay. Yeah. yeah well, uh, not to mention the environmental right. impacts and, and he right. public health impacts right. associated. Okay. So we, so, we recently won a sustainable tourism grant award, as you know, to do um, a refill pilot project for hotel and lodging industries. And Julie and I met, as well as um, Abode's owners, at the Green Business Awards. Um, and we're potentially going to be pitching them the idea of, of being part of this refill pilot project and moving away from single-use toiletries to refillable toiletries. Okay. Um, in which case, there will be some major cost savings there. Okay. And I love that. And that was what my next question was going to be. We do have to wrap up here in just a couple minutes. Uh, Mary, when you bring these businesses together, uh, is this also an idea incubator for the green businesses? Because I think you're bringing a bunch of like-minded people together into this program. And are you seeing this ripple effect happening in our community? Absolutely. Networking is so important and collaboration. Uh, we hold through the Green Business Program quarterly events, lunch and learns, um, the green drinks events, and it's so fun to see these businesses get together. We have a newsletter. Businesses love learning what other businesses are doing. There's always a competitive aspect too. So, you know, now that we have Abode Luxury in there, we can go to other property management companies and say, hey, look who's on the list. Why are you not on the list? <laughs> and so there definitely is competition, but uh, it, it really is about networking because I think we're at the point now with sustainability that that businesses want to be doing better. They just don't know how. And so our program provides the platform with resources and guidance to get them there. And speaking of that, resources, where do people go to learn more about uh, your green business initiatives? Uh, you can go to recycleutah.org under the education tab and green businesses, and it will give you lots of information. I also want to mention that our next green drinks event, uh, we do them every other month, is on March 12th. It's going to be at Fulfilled, so you can go into the shop and see everything that Kimberly has. 
and the topic is on plastics. So we will have Mike Lures from Snyderville Basin Water Reclamation District speaking about microplastics in our mm-hmm. water and more. And Kimberly will be talking, of course, about many plastic alternatives out there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate all of you being in the studio today. We have Mary Klosser, the Education Director with Recycle Utah, Julie Finnegan, who is the Impact Manager for Abode Luxury Rentals, and Kimberly Flores, the owner of Fulfilled Utah. Thank you all so much for being here. Yeah, thank thank you. you. Thanks for having all us. All right. We are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with our second guest. Stick around. This is This Green Earth. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us for the second part of the show is David Owen. He is a writer with, among other uh, publishing groups, The New Yorker, um, and also the author of a number of books, including one titled Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. David, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Of course. Um, You know, you've written several books about the environment. I believe one, uh, I'm trying to look through my notes real quick. Um, Oh, The Conundrum, which addresses kind of the world of energy efficiency and, and I guess I'll call it the unexpected consequences sometimes associated with trying to be more energy and environmentally mindful. And a book titled Green Metropolis, which addresses the the values of urban living and sustainability in that sense. Um, And then you've also written books about about golf and and other science topics. What drew you to those books, though, regarding the environment and sustainability and, and the Colorado River, for that matter? Uh, well, let's, uh, lots of things, really. Uh, Green Metropolis grew out of a New Yorker arter, article of mine. Uh, my wife and I lived in New York for seven years, and then we moved to the country, and we felt uh, as though we had done something, uh, you know, sort of environmentally valuable. We moved into Arcadia. We lived next to a, on a dirt road next to a nature preserve, mm-hmm. and there were wild animals in our yard. But I realized very quickly, you know, we, when we went from zero cars in the city to one and then to two mm-hmm. uh, and then uh following a brief midlife crisis of mine to three which then the third became a necessity when both my kids could drive and what we discovered is that uh when when you move to the country what you really do is move into a car because you can't walk anywhere anymore uh and i realized that by that people were generally wrong in the way they thought about dense cities and that uh and did some research and turns out that uh, it, you know uh, new yorkers if you if you uh ranked all the states by uh you know new york city is large enough to be a state if you ranked all this if you if it were one and you ranked all the states by per capita energy consumption it would be 51st it would be the lowest mm. uh, if the fewest drivers the very small by by almost an order of magnitude the small the lowest percentage of car owners it's one of the very few places in uh in the country where uh, walking is a primary mode of transportation uh so all these things and it was it was kind of hit hit me and that was a a, a beginning and i had it was actually hard to persuade the new yorker's editor that that I was on to something. He's a lifelong New Yorker, you know? yeah. and he said, "You'll have to prove it to me." Uh, and, and then I did, and and um, so that that sort of started. Uh, right. Let me idea. let then, me jump because because I learned my lesson the same way. 
Um, I moved to New York City, lived there for a year back in the late 90s. And of course, the third day that I was there, my car was broken into. And then the, the right. seventh day, I drove the car out of the city, sold it, and I didn't need a car for the rest of the time I lived there. And I learned, just like you, that that was the most in environmentally mindful living that I've ever done, at walking, subway, uh, the economies of scale that are involved in, in energy use and, and sharing energy and, and water uh, management and solid waste management that the city does. So dense urban environments are indeed in, in many ways, many ways, uh, much more environmentally uh, effective, efficient than, like you say, those of us that live out here in Park City and get in our cars to, to just go to the store and to the post office and back. So I get it, Dave. So. Right. We've also learned, you know, because of, you know, various uh, storms and hurricanes and COVID that uh, dense cities make disasters more efficient too. So there's, <laughs> there's, there's a downside, but, mm. but it's definitely from, you know, if you want to, if you want to make public transit work, it, it, New York city is one of the very few places in the country where it, where it actually makes sense because right. it, you need a, a high level of density to make it work. Okay. So that, that was your book about sustainability. And like I said, the, uh, the other one about, uh, the conundrum, energy efficiency, uh, and I guess the unexpected consequences, but w maybe we can get that in a little bit. I w let's let's turn our attention to the Colorado River. What was the motivation behind that book? Well, I'd always, I always water is water is interesting. It's crucial. We need water to live, and I yes. wanted to write something about water. And but to figure out, it's so complicated. Trying to figure out some manageable way to do it. And I thought, well, if I just follow a single river, uh, you know, not in a kayak, but to see where the water comes into the river and where it goes. Uh, when we draw it out, uh, that would be one way to do it. And the Colorado is perfect for that exercise because it's, it, you know, it's long, but not too long. Uh, it crosses a number of states and I think sort of in, it, it supports, you know, the, the number that's always given is 40 million people depend on water from the Colorado River. Uh, and huge uh, industrial and commercial and agricultural values uh, in the United States. And in some ways, from the point of view of writing a book, the best thing about it is that we completely use it up. Uh, it it no longer reaches its natural endpoint, which is at the northern end of the Gulf of California mm -hmm. uh, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so you can here's here's a this body of water that we make extremely efficient use of in in that sense. We we use it all. Mm -hmm. And by comparison with a river like the Mississippi, I grew up in Kansas City on the Missouri River. Comparison by comparison with the Mississippi River. The, the Colorado River is nothing. It's you know it. The Mississippi carries in uh, you know in a, I don't know a couple of weeks the the amount of water that the Colorado does in an entire year, and yet we make it's incredibly important to the economies of the states that it passes that, that draw water from it, California especially, uh, and into uh, the country as a whole because you know we. We all depend on, you know, if you like to eat salad during the winter, you depend on the Colorado River. Right. And in this uh, book, you take us through the history of people's involvement or who've been involvement with the Colorado River. And you break down agreements uh, that take us into the 20s about the river. Can you kind of talk us through that and when people decided that they were going to um, use the river in, in ways that impact all of us now? Yes, and I think if you're if you live in the east as I do, you think uh, you think of water 
water regulation in a very different way from the way people do in the West. Mm -hmm. And in the East, as in England, the source of our common law, if you own property along a river, you share, you have shared access to that resource with the other people who own property along the river. It's not true in the West. And the reason uh, began during the gold rush, uh, because the principal mining method was to, uh, to divert water from a stream and then use it to blast, to do slu uh, mine for gold by blasting away earth and leaving gold in your sluice box. Uh, and the difficulty there was that if you shared a stream of water with another miner, very possibly there, w there wouldn't be enough water to satisfy both. And so this very different um, uh, a form of water law arose, which is referred to as uh, first in time, first in right, uh, uh, often, and what it basically says is that the first person uh, to make a legitimate use of water uh, from a stream gains the right to use that much water for that purpose forever. Uh, and there are many complications of law. You don't even have to be next to the river uh, to draw, to have the right to use water from it. And in fact, you could have hundreds of acres next to a river and have no right whatsoever to use any of that water. So it's very different from what people in the East certainly, uh, how they think of water law. And it's and it's so complicated that even people in the West uh, don't necessarily realize exactly how uh, how this resource is, is divided up among, uh, among the different potential users. Who, who gets the most water out of the Colorado River? I mean, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to, wild guess, California, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, right, but, right. but, okay. but the, are there any surprises there as far as who gets the most and maybe who, who gets, who should get more perhaps? Uh, California definitely gets the most. And in, in fact, the whole reason this, uh, the, the, the incredibly contentious negotiations over dividing up the river arose mm -hmm. were that uh, states, that were not California, but had access to Colorado River water, worried that California would establish this first in time, first in right, uh, right to Colorado River water before anybody else could. They would, it was growing so fast that they would, uh, they would be, become legally entitled to all the water. And so they had these contentious negotiations where they divided it up. Uh, unfortunately, there, uh, when they divided it up, it turned out to be it was just an unusually wet period in the history of the Colorado River. I mean, right. like not just like in, I mean, over eons it was. So they divided up more water uh, than was actually in the in the river, uh, and people, people, lawyers in the West, they'll talk about the difference between wet water and paper water. And mm -hmm. there's always been more paper water than there has been wet water. And uh, among lawyers, of course, the paper water is the important water, and, and that's been the source of the contention. And Utah has felt this uh, uh, particularly because Utah has never uh, drawn its entire theoretical legal allotment from uh, from the river, and now uh, it would like to. Uh, there's been plans to uh, to divert water from the from the river to uh, irrigate. Uh, agricultural areas were kind of in the St. George area, right. primarily Washington County. Uh, yeah, yeah. But they kind of waited too long. <laughs> I mean, that's now it's, you know, the federal government is involved, and uh, they, there just isn't, you know, they have a legal right to it on paper, but it, as a practical matter, it's it, it's a long it's a long shot. Even though 
Utah's already spent millions of dollars on it. I think people tend to, I think if you're, even people in the West tend to assume that the, the major villain is Las Vegas, because you look at Las Vegas is right on the Colorado, or very near uh, Lake Mead, which is the largest reservoir uh, on the Colorado River. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at the Bellagio and you see the fountains in front of it, you think, oh my God, they're draining uh, they're draining the, uh, the, the reason that the, the lake is down 150 feet is because Las Vegas is pulling this water out to right. make, to make fountains. But the fact is that when, when the river was divided up back in the 1920s, Las, uh, Nevada was nowhere, you know, Las Vegas was nothing. And so Nevada's allotment from the river was very small. And as a consequence, uh, Nevada has been probably more far-sighted than other, uh, Colorado R river users. Uh, they've, enacted uh, a huge number of conservation measures and they've also they have access uh to uh, they have a they've built uh, uh what they called straws uh draw uh, pipes that draw pumping stations that draw water from lake mead and they're the only, they have the only pumping station that's capable of drawing water from lake mead if the water falls below the level that's known as Deadpool, which is the the level below which water no longer flows through the dam downstream, which would cut off California entirely. So, uh, it's the 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 heroes and villains are often difficult to pick out uh, just by by looking at the surface. But it's you know it's it's incredibly interesting because it's uh, there's so many people involved in so many ways. And this is what, you know, water problems, a thing that I wrote in the book is that, you know, water problems, like many environmental environmental problems, they're incredibly easy to solve if you don't know very much about them. Just, oh, we'll, we'll just do this. And then you, the deeper you dig, the more complicated uh, these problems become. And you realize how many people's right. lives uh, depend on this resource and how complex the, uh, the infrastructure is that enables them to to uh, to exploit it we're speaking with david owen he is the author of the book where the water goes life and death along the colorado river um well come on let's 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 find some villains here yeah what um, are some of the negative <laughs> maybe, environmental impacts yeah. uh i'll throw out a couple uh, potential saudi arabia china they do they actually have a role in in using colorado river water they do, but it's all, it's it's another uh, it's it's complex yeah. uh, too. They they've bought uh, you know foreign countries have bought uh, la uh, agricultural land and, and water water rights in that part of the country, and so you know you can have farmers in uh, in the American Southwest growing alfalfa that feeds horses in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But it's that's a complicated too. And I talked to a farmer in the uh, in. Uh, uh, in the Imperial Valley, uh, in California, and he said, "You know, he said these guys have a lot of money and they have a lot of technology that we didn't know anything about, and they, they've they've learned a lot from uh, from these people. And also, you know, there, as in any economic activity, there are people in California who depend heavily on uh, on the, the agricultural activity, whoever whoever's uh, performing it, and, and that's complicated too." Right. Uh, so, um, you know, all these things are, they require, uh, a, a sort of a level of thinking that we're not used to applying to problems for a long time. Uh, people in the South, people who depended on the Colorado river were kind of unusually, um, willing to work together with others just out of a, a sort of 
desire to keep the federal government out of it. Uh, but the the levels of drought in recent years have been so severe that the, the Department of the Interior has in, inevitably become involved. And so now, you know, there are those tensions, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's all, it's all complicated. And another complication is that the infrastructure that Western states, you know, these independent Western states depend on to, uh, to divert this water and make use of it. it was, almost all of that was built with federal money. So, you know, Hoover Dam, uh, the, the, uh, the great aqueducts and canals, there's a lot of federal money went into that. So the whole country has invested right. in this, this uh, infrastructure that draws water from this, what's really a pretty modest river. Uh, and, uh, and, and of course, in our, we've screwed any number of people, the, the tribes in that, the right. tribes in that part of, it, of the country, at least theoretically, have, I mean, you could argue by this, the doctrine of prior appropriation mm -hmm. by first in time, first in right, that the tribes have access to all the, have right, legal right to all that water. Right. right. Uh, they were, the, they were there first. And when they, when the federal government moved them from their, uh, from their original homes onto reservations where they were expected now to live agri by agriculture the supreme court ruled you know more than a century ago that the the government wouldn't the federal government would have done would not have done that if they had not expected uh the those tribes to have access to what they needed to live as farmers and that that means water but uh that's you know, of course you know we've screwed them out of that as well they're now this is now a huge issue, and some uh, some uh, tribal groups have settled for money in lieu of the infrastructure that it would take to to draw water. But it's there are many many unresolved issues uh, that um, are difficult, and then that are of course made vastly more difficult. They would be difficult anyway, but they're made vastly more difficult by the possibility, the likelihood that the drought that has taken place in that area for the past quarter century, just about um could continue for a long time historically you know, in in you know really long historical time there have been mega droughts in that region that have lasted uh for more than a century with intermittent periods of of wet uh right. but but really you know you look at the tree ring analysis you can see that it's not a, a naturally wet part of the country no yeah so <laughs> no. um humans have come in and kind of complicated this natural resource and we talk about rights but are there any rights that the river has or rights in nature mm -hmm. um and this ecosystem to keep it healthy mm -hmm. this is a this is a whole new way of, of thinking about uh water law and mm -hmm. it's and it has some traction i guess that's the right word you, you look back in the 1920s when people talk about conservation uh, what they were almost always talking about was conserving a resource for economic exploitation by humans. So it was it, so a, a river that ran into the sea, all the water that went into the sea that was wasted. We were not conserving it because we weren't gaining any uh, immediate economic uh, gain from it. Now there are, uh, you know, legally you can make a case that that you know the fish in a stream that uh, that. Uh, 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 that you know, plants growing alongside it have a legal right to that water too. And you know, once again, all very complicated. Uh, one of the things that people, that are environmental groups that are trying to you know buy up water rights, uh, acquire water rights so that they can basically not use them. But the difficulty with 
prior appropriation with first in time, first in right, is that their rights, the rights that, that they acquire are usually very junior rights. They're, they, they're far, they're down the line below the people who have the first access to, uh, to that water. And like you say in the book, you know, for the most part, most of the time, the water doesn't even reach its historical terminus anymore. Uh, right, which yeah. is, you know, across the border in Mexico, in the Gulf of California, it only t it takes really high water years, high snow years or high runoff years for that water to reach the terminus because you, you say there's so many straws pulling at the river. Even in high water years, it doesn't get there. It yeah. took a, it took a, the only time it's gotten there in decades was w w when there was a, an, a, a, an agreement was negotiated between the United States and Mexico to give a, a pulse release of water you know, a hundred and some thousand acre feet uh, of water, and it got barely all the way to the end. But it was, it took a, it was, it didn't last more than, you know. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, it almost, last very long. it sounded almost ceremonial, you know, like. Right, oh, yeah. it was, and it was, and it was viewed as a great victory, because yeah. here was, there was an acknowledgement of that, you know, this would be a reasonable thing to do. And you got, you know, I, I went to the, I went with an environmentalist and a couple of environmentalists to the very end of the, to where the water, where the road, river just is no more it's sand mm -hmm. you step mm -hmm. across it you want you can you're jumping back and forth between the united states and mexico uh and the you, you could see that it wasn't that long ago uh that it was not like that because there was one point where we the road that we uh came in on the highway it was it looked like a a causeway it was i don't know 15 feet above uh, the surface of the land on either side. And it was mm -hmm. that high because water had been a threat to it in the past before, probably before the 90s. And, uh, you know, there's a bridge that we drove across that uh, was across the Colorado River. However, you know, it was only sand underneath it. And it was a toll bridge. And people thought, why am I paying toll to drive across sand? And many people would, you know, they would drive around the bridge and just drive through the sand. So you see that, you know, or we would be walking, you know, walk for a mile across a mile of sand to get to the bed of the river where there wasn't really any water anymore. And we'd see, you know, shells and signs that water had been there. Uh, it's, it, it's, it just, it's, we use it all. And, uh, and it's the United States, mostly the United States only very reluctantly uh, decided early on that maybe Mexico had ought to have some right to some of the water from this river. It's what they get, they use all up too. Yes. Do you think when we are approaching these issues that we're kind of, it's being siloed and it's not very holistic, it mm. feels like. There's not a lot of people working together. It's almost like they're attacking these separate problems, but they're not looking at the whole. Well, you know, I don't know. Water, the good thing about water is, it, as an environmental issue, is that if you don't have it, you die. And like in three days so it's people tend to solve water problems one way or another and i think there's more you see much more action uh about uh, on water in the southwest than you do say about you know carbon output or uh any any anything else on the long list of environmental issues that we face uh because you just there's so many people who depend on water uh that it some somebody has to do something. Now, the difficulty is that the we t I think that the ordinary uh, a tip, uh, an average person tends to think, oh, the the problem is I'm flushing my toilet too many times, or I'm you know I'm watering my lawn too much. It's regular use water use by ordinary citizens is a very small percentage of the total. It's 
most of the water use in the United States and everywhere is, is agricultural. And so it, that's where the real, um, uh, where the real issues have to be addressed. Uh, and it's difficult. It's, as with all these things, it's really difficult. One is that you say, okay, well, we will stop irrigating uh, this much land. We'll dry up this much land right. and that will uh, leave that much more water in the, in, in the river. It, but when you do that, you uh, you know you you do, you can destroy the the economy of an entire region. You can kill an entire town because without the the uh, without that agricultural activity, there are people who who no longer have jobs. And so one of the one of the things that that have been done is to pay landowners to fallow certain parts of of their land. But that that money goes to the landowners. It doesn't go to the people who up until that moment depended on the jobs that were created by by participating in that, in agriculture in those places. There's also the problem that the, the infrastructure that carries water from the river into, into all these irrigation systems, it, you kind of, you have to use it to keep it functioning. And so even places that are dry, even places that are supposedly being dried, uh, you have to do some irrigation on them just to keep the, all the drainage working and keep, keep everything in order. So it's, it's not, the simple simple matter of we're just going to turn off this faucet, uh, and and then we'll save that much water, and and and, and then, then everything will be all right. And you see, you see it in other places too. There's a there's a canal that uh, that crosses from the the that crosses the north just north of the of the border with Mexico, uh, that carries water from the Colorado into California, and the. Um, uh, it was just dug in, in the ground. A huge amount of water leaked from it. So uh, we'll save water by lining that canal with concrete. And so that was done. But as soon as that was done, the water stopped and water stopped leaking from the, the aqueduct, the canal. Uh, it stopped replenishing um, groundwater that near it, which uh, farmers in Mexico, northern Mexico, were depending on. Right. So every time, you know, it's it's very it's very difficult to do uh, to take an action uh, that seems really smart in the abstract, and then have it have all it, and not be sort of overwhelmed by unintended consequences. Right. Uh, there's and another another one is farmers in the Imperial Valley. Uh, a lot of the runoff from there. Um, well, it's all, this is almost to come. It has to do with uh, with the Salton Sea. Yeah. But it's one of the it's one of the consequences of one of the unintended consequences of making agricultural ir ir irrigation more efficient then you have less runoff and you have this great sink this that was made it's very creation was an environmental disaster but now preventing environmental disaster requires that we keep water in it and uh and if you farmers become more efficient less water flows into it and it and it dries up well the name of the book is where the water goes life and death along the colorado river the author is David Owen. David, is there a website people can go to to learn more about this book and your other writings? Uh, DavidOwen.net, uh, and you can follow. You can kind of follow along the trip that I took down the river. As I yeah. say, I did it. I took. I traveled in a car, not in a boat. So it's the looking at the the inputs and the outputs rather than um, risking my life in the 
in Grand Canyon. No, I, I, I did that. It's a great, lots of wonderful photos, including the, the one we wish we had time, the Sunny Bono Salton Sea National Wildlife Refuge. Right. We'll have to have you back just to talk about that, Salton Sea. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Salton Sunny Sea is an, is an amazing topic. Salton Sea yeah, exactly. is mind-boggling. Mind yeah, well, uh, another time. Thank you so much, David Owen, for joining us this morning on This Green Earth.